let me speak my mind. Those can kind of be dangerous words, right? When someone says that to you, let me speak my mind, or let me tell you what I'm thinking, be prepared, because what might come next could be potentially some harsh words, right? When we're children, our mothers try to teach us to make sure that we think before we speak, or maybe just our parents do that in general, and we've heard that before, but so often we don't always do that, right? Sometimes the words come out before the thinking does. Or sometimes we just end up doing some silly things and saying some silly things. Like, have you ever been at a restaurant, for instance, and a waiter comes and hands you food and they say, enjoy your meal, and you embarrassingly say, what? You too. (laughs) Or maybe you've been to a movie theater before and uh, you hand the ticket clerk your, your stub and they rip it and hand it back to you and say, enjoy the show, and you say, you too, and you feel a little silly in doing that in a situation where you've spoken too quickly or you said something uh, too hasty and it's gotten you in trouble. I know a time or two when I was in high school and I was written up for insubordination because of my tongue. But one of the memories as I was thinking about this this past week of saying silly things and not really thinking before I was talking came from a time when I was uh, my wife, Michaela, and uh, it was around 2010, and Michaela and I, we were just starting to get to know each other, and I remember I was trying to think of something to say to her in this Christmas card that I was giving her, but I didn't really have a lot of time to think about it, and I was kind of nervous because I liked her, but I didn't want, I, you know, I wanted to come across as cool, and I didn't want to, like, you know, put on too much, so I just wrote keep on being you. And then I embarrassingly signed my name as if like I was a baseball player or something like that. And I handed it to her. And to this day, she holds that card over my head saying, this is, Kevin wrote this one time. We can kind of embarrass ourselves, right? With the things that we say. Well, today I want to take a closer look at that because I think James chapter 1 actually speaks to this a little bit. It speaks to the power of our words and specifically the ways that we oftentimes approach conversations. And I think that there's a lot here for us today. I want to be honest with you, though, that I think today's message is going to step on a few of your toes. It's a little bit difficult because I think a lot of us in this room, we struggle with this. And for that reason, you might feel like I'm pointing a finger at you today. But I want to encourage you in realizing that the only reason why we're doing this is because God's word brings it up. And we're going to be faithful stewards of reading and listening to God's word. And we're going to allow God's word to, comfort, uh, to, to confront us as well as comfort us as it comes up in scripture. So just as a recap, James is writing to the Jewish people in the diaspora, which is 
basically the scattered Jews across the Greco-Roman world, and he's talking to his, his, his readers there, and he's hopefully trying to encourage them in the way that they're living. So James 1.19, let's go ahead and read that today. I'll do the reading, and if you don't have your Bibles with you today, um, most of the scriptures today will be on the screen. Um, I'm reading out of the NIV. So it says this, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. And now let me just stop for a second there. He's saying, my dear brothers and sisters. The word that he uses there to introduce this is eldelphos. And what that basically means is, is my beloved. My, he, he's in some ways trying to create this endearment to his readers or his listeners before he says what comes next. It's kind of like when I look at you guys and say, my church family, my friends, and then you know I might be saying something else after that, right? That might be a little bit harsher. So that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to, in some ways, set up this fact that he loves them, but what he's about to say is very difficult for many people to hear. So he does that. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take notes of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, what, is, what does this mean? This is, in some ways, what James is doing here is he's creating a conduct or a formula, if you will, on how we are to approach conversations, right? He's saying that in order to approach a conversation well, you should be someone who's quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because words are powerful. You know, you know we've, we've heard this kind of child uh, rhyme, if you will, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. We've heard that so many times, and maybe we've even said that to somebody else on the playground, but in reality... Words do have this way of hurting us, do they not? If anything, you could probably think of some words spoken in your life where someone has hurt you deeply based off of what they've said. Maybe they discriminated you. Maybe they were racist towards you. Maybe they just looked at you and said something mean that caused you to be hurt. Some of us even live with those hurts that span decades. So words are powerful and words do have a way of hurting us. But so often when we approach conversations with people, we aren't quick to listen. We aren't slow to speak. We aren't slow to become angry. If anything, we're the opposite of that, right? Most of us, when we're in conversations, are very slow to listen. We're very quick to give our opinions. And some of us are incredibly quick at becoming angry. I mean, look no further than, than social media, for instance, is a, a way of seeing that live out every single day. But here, James is calling us to do something different. What happens when we are quick to speak? 
Oftentimes, I think we get in trouble, right? Because words are powerful, the things that we say have a lasting effect on our lives and the lives of other people. See, I'm the pastor here at this church, and just as an illust- to illustrate the point, words are so powerful that if I were to say certain things up here, it would have the potential to create hopefully a positive effect or a negative effect, right? You know, I'm in a position here where I'm acting as a teacher. I'm acting as a shepherd. And so often a part of that is the words that I speak to you. The way that I communicate God's truth to you. So for instance, if I say something that is wrong, like if I start to preach a gospel other than Jesus Christ who died and rose again, if I preach a different kind of gospel, a gospel where you don't need Jesus, or a gospel where God brings health and wealth, and I start preaching these things, then what am I doing? I'm violating what Scripture has has to say, and in some ways I'm leading you astray. Words are incredibly powerful. But look what it says in verse 20. It says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So it says you need to be able to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because why? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. You see, if we aren't the kinds of people that are mindful of, in the conversations that we have, and we allow ourselves to go to an angry place, then the fruit of that anger is what? Unrighteousness. Destructiveness. Think about the times where you've regretted the most what you've said. Is there a chance that anger was involved in that situation? Yeah. If you're married, you probably know this lesson really well. Do you not? Oftentimes when we are the most angry is when we can be the most destructive. And here James is saying that we need to be incredibly careful with that. Because human anger does not produce righteousness. But I want to pause here for a sec at the word anger. Because I think it's important for us to be able to understand anger well. Because it's a normal human emotion that we feel. Many of us have had multiple moments of life where we've felt angry about something. And I think in some ways, sometimes anger gets a bad rap. Because so often we can't control our anger. Anger typically leads us to a place where we do things that are destructive. But I believe that oftentimes anger can can create a different kind of result. Take the person of Jesus, for instance. We know that in multiple portions of Scripture, Jesus was very angry about things classic example of that comes out of John chapter 2, 
when Jesus goes into the temple. And what happens if, if those of you who might know that story are ready? He literally starts kicking over tables. He creates a, a, a whip out of cords and starts shooing people away in, in anger over the temple. Is what Jesus did there, was it wrong? You know, of course we say to ourselves, well, Jesus was perfect. He was without sin, so how could it be wrong? But if I started knocking over this pulpit and started kicking over chairs, there's a chance some of you would think that I was doing something wrong. So why is it that we look at Jesus a little differently? Or is there something more to this concept of anger that we maybe are not understanding? You see, if you didn't know, at least within that story, one of the reasons why Jesus knocks over the table is because of what? Because there is this money market happening there. Now, there's actually a bigger picture to this story that that many people don't realize. It wasn't the fact that people were selling goods at the temple that was an issue because oftentimes people would purchase animals and things like that in order to be sacrificed to make atonement for their sins. That wasn't the problem. The problem was is the location of where this was happening at. It was happening within the court of Gentiles. Now, I know that might sound like meaningless to you, but let me paint that picture a little bit more clearly. The reason why Jesus got so angry in that moment that he literally said, get these out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market, was because that court of Gentiles was a very special place within the temple. It was the only place were foreign people who were outside of the Jewish people of that time would have an opportunity to pray and worship God, Yahweh. And because of that, they had turned this place that in some ways represented this missional heart of God. This heart of God that wasn't limited to one people group, but that was inviting to all nations, and they made it into a noisy, busy marketplace where other foreigners had no opportunity to truly worship the living God. And this greatly offended Jesus because, you see, God is the God of all nations, of all people, and we see within the temple that God creates that dynamic there, that he's not limited to one ethnicity or one people group. And Jesus was greatly offended by that, which is why he flipped over those tables in that moment. So anger, if you ask me, has the potential to bring about good, does it not? Do you think Jesus was right now, knowing these details? Do you think Jesus was right in doing this? Absolutely. Because what these people were doing was they were offending the very heart of God. Which is why I want to be very clear in saying this today, that that I believe biblically there are two forms of anger that we see in the Bible. Chris will put this on the screen for us. We see unrighteous anger, what God sometimes calls human anger, 
And then we also see what? Righteous anger. A godly anger. So a clear example of this is when in your anger you say something hurtful. Something that destroys somebody. Something that mars the image of God. Something that is meant to just make you feel better and wound somebody else. That is unrighteous human anger. And as I said earlier today, the part where I'm gonna, that I'm going to step on toes is in this. Because here's the thing. We sometimes value in our culture people who are quick with their tongue, who have quick and sharp comebacks. And don't get me wrong, it's great to have wit, but so often we do that with an intent to, to what? To make ourselves feel better at the expense of somebody else. I'll be honest. Sometimes I use my wit wrongly. And I live in that human anger. Just yesterday, ironically, even though I'm preaching this message today, just yesterday I did that. My wife and I, we were going for a family walk and we had just finished taking Theodore to the playground and we were at Clement Park and we were walking back to our cars and we were waiting patiently at the crosswalk with a giant sign right next to us that said yield to pedestrians and a car comes zooming by and I mean this is a big truck and it comes zooming by and he literally swerves in order to make sure that he doesn't hit us. And I'm just shocked because I'm literally, my wife is literally in, has the carriage for our two-month-old infant, and I'm holding my two-year-old son, and I just can't believe that someone doesn't have the patience to yield to us and allow our little family to cross the street. So, of course, I, I, I wait for him, and I say, hey, I want to love you and bless you and share the gospel with you. Of course I did that, right? not even close. <laughs> the first things that come out of my mouth when he opens the, the, the door is I say, hey, real classy, man. <laughs> and then he starts arguing back with me, and I start arguing back with him. And then finally, my wife gives me the little nudge of, let's get out of here. And <sighs> I'm hoping that certain things happen. <laughs> I had to, I, you know, from that moment, why was I doing that? I was doing that so that I would feel better. I wasn't doing that so that the situation would become better. I was doing that so that I would feel better. That I would have something to say in order to make myself feel taller and him smaller. But here's the thing. Was it wrong for me to be angry in that moment? I don't think so. I think that person was being very rude, and I think that person was being impatient, and I think that person was also being very dangerous. Because had I not had the sense to me to be careful, hold my family back, then what could have happened? We obviously could have gotten hit by the car, and this person will hopefully learn at least not to do that again. But I need to make sure that I don't allow other people's negative behavior to cause me to live in negative behavior as well. And that's hard, church. Here's the thing. I know some of you, in some of your relationships, whether it be with a loved one, a co-worker, a 
a stranger on the street, that when I say this, you know that you do it as well. And look, my my job isn't to make you necessarily feel bad for the sake of belittling you, but hopefully to raise you up. This is why we need to talk about this. Because here's the thing. If we can't get this right, then what are we going to end up doing? We're just going to continue to wound and hurt those who are around us. We're going to continue to be a part of the problem of being quick-tempered people who wound people with our words that have a way of wounding people for, eight, for, for decades to come. You know, C.S. Lewis has a great quote, and I was going to leave it for later in the message, but I think it's fitting to say it now. And I I love this. It comes from the problem of pain. And he says, good and evil, and and Chris, if you could put that on the screen, good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act is the capture of of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. Now C.S. Lewis is a poetic flowery writer, but what is he basically trying to say here? What he's trying to say is that the good that we do in this world has a way of compounding. It has a way of creating a ripple effect, if you will. Where if I do good to somebody, it could almost be like the good contagion, right? A good virus. I mean, that's what in some ways the gospel is, right? It goes from person to person and it hopefully spreads in a healthy way that brings people life. But our negative behavior, our bad moral deeds, our evil that we do also has a similar effect, does it not? It also can ripple. And so many stories and scriptures show this. And if we examine our own lives, we've experienced this as well, right? Where hurt people do what? Hurt people. And unfortunately, sin has a way of continuing to create hurt in people's lives. So God is calling us to have righteous anger and not unrighteous anger. So let me be clear about this, church. When you get angry, do not just immediately think that your anger is wrong. Your anger could be very well justified. And if you're in conversation with people and you're getting angry, again, your anger could be very well justified. But don't allow that anger to lead to unrighteous living. Amen? I know this is hard. I get it. I obviously failed at it, right? But I believe that righteous anger when appropriately applied, gives us the power 
and the motivation to fight for justice. And I believe that James wants that of his readers. So again, what do we do with this? How do we become people who are quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry? What, how, it's hard, right? Let me give you one tool that I think could help. And it's something that I'm practicing on, and it's kind of cheesy, but I think it, it's good. And it's learning how to wait. And uh, here's an, it's an acronym that, that breaks out to this. That when you're in conversation with people, you wait. And that is you ask, why am I talking? <laughs> ask yourself, why am I talking? Have you ever been in a conversation where maybe halfway through the conversation you start to think of yourself, why in the Lord am I talking right now? <laughs> Uh, Will Rogers, the American film actor, he, he, he says this. He says, never miss a good chance to shut up. <laughs> never miss a good chance to shut up. Something that I think is funny comes out of the book of Proverbs 17. And it says, the one who has knowledge uses words with restraint. So did you hear that? God considers you knowledgeable, or you are a knowledgeable person if you use words with restraint, which, which basically means if you choose your words wisely. And whoever has understanding is even-tempered. So if you want to come across as someone who has understanding in life, be even-tempered. And this is what's funny to me. It says, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. Did you hear that? So even if you're a fool, even if you're someone that doesn't have a lot of wit about you, but you remain quiet you will, in conversations, even that will be considered, you can be considered wise for something like that. So if a fool could be wise just by remaining silent, then there's something to be learned that it is important for us to learn how to remain silent. That doesn't mean that there aren't moments for us to speak up. But what it does mean is, is that we choose our words wisely and we choose our timing wisely. This is so important, especially if you're married. Because here's the thing. Our wives, they know very well when we're wrong, <laughs> right? But let me encourage you, wives especially, even though you might be 100% right about when your husband is being wrong, choose the timing in which you let them know of that. Because timing is everything. And oftentimes, we say the right thing in the wrong time, right? And we need to be careful and mindful of that, and not just in marriage relationships, but in any relationships. If you're young, being able to do that well in your classroom settings or in your, your budding relationships and things like that. But ultimately, it doesn't matter whether you're young or old. This is a skill that takes time to be applied. So ask yourself, why am I talking? And look for opportunities to just shut up and listen. I like what 
Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, he says, let your conversations be always full of grace. So what does that mean? Let your conversations be full of grace. It means have the kind of intentions in your conversations where you are living in graceful ways. Where you are in some ways looking to build up, looking to love on, looking to give something to somebody that they might not deserve. Because isn't that what grace is? Unmerited favor? So looking for those opportunities, and it finishes in Colossians 4, 6 by saying this, and do that in a way that's seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. So what does that mean? That means that the key in some ways to being able to actually meet people's needs, to answer their questions in life, is to be the kind of person who in conversation is full of grace. And seasoned with salt. One of the things that we try to practice here, and and if you're in leadership, you've probably heard me say this before, is one of the things that I try to teach those who who are under leadership with me is, is that we assume positive intentions in our conversations. Which basically means that when we, con- when, we, when we talk to people and when people maybe even drop the ball, instead of just immediately going to a bad place and thinking negatively of them, we take the time to assume positive intentions in the way that people are operating. And that's not always easy. Because it's easy to go to the negative. That's, that's the way that we like to go but we need to be grace-filled people. And we do that by creating these habits. Because here's the thing, we create habits to sin, and we need to create habits to work out our righteousness in God. So let's keep on, 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 on talking about some of these verses. Verse 21, James 1, 21 says this, Therefore, Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Some Bible commentators, they like to uh, split up verse 19 and 20 from verse 21, and they like to kind of keep those two things separate. But I believe very much that it's actually these next few verses that in some ways are making sense of what came before it. And one of the reasons why I know this is because of what what do you see as the first word in the beginning of verse 21? What's the first word there? Therefore. And let me just give you a little Bible tool right now. Anytime in scripture you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. (laughs) And the reason why it's there is because James is trying to very strongly tell his listeners that it is important, it's vital for you to be able to remove what? Moral filth out of your life. Moral filth out of your life. So in the same way, I think James is trying to give us this understanding of how we navigate conversations. He's ultimately trying to help his readers know 
that they need to remove the filth out of their lives. You know, I was having a conversation with somebody pretty recently from the congregation, and we were both talking about our, our charismatic upbringing in the Pentecostal church, and, and I think about that very fondly, and I, I think many of you know that my family kind of comes from, from the charismatic movement, and I love that. I love the emphasis on the Holy Spirit and how God is moving, living, and active. And I want that in my life, and I carry that in my life. Uh, but I remember as a youth, one of the things that that church would practice would be these uh, fire burnings, where we would take all of our worldly possessions, right? So maybe it was a, a, a CD that had some choice uh, songs, or I don't know, it, for me it was like Pokemon cards or something like that when I was a kid. And we would go and take those worldly possessions and we would light them on fire. And this is what we did at the charismatic church. And we would have these, these ceremonies where we take all these worldly things and throw them in a can and light them up. And as, as much as that might feel extreme, and maybe that is extreme, I understood that the heart behind that was ultimately what? That we were going to take out of our lives the physical objects that create negative moral decision making. So even if that was extreme and even if maybe we didn't need to exercise that on, on uh, an actual ceremony of burning these things. I mean we see it happening even in the book of Acts right with the church at Antioch does what they burn all of these books that were most likely witchcraft type books so in the same way James is saying you need to be able to 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 remove the filth out of your life and take time to do that well and what's the promise there it says that if you do that, if you humbly accept God's word, it could save you. Now, here's the thing. I'm a thoroughly evangelical Christian. And as a thoroughly evangelical, Bible-believing Christian, one of the things that I consistently hang my hat on is God's grace. Amen? It's by grace that we have been saved. Luther would be really happy, right, if I was saying that. That's, that's the beauty of what came out of the Reformation, is the, the doctrine of grace, that you don't necessarily have to work your way in order to earn God's favor, but that you earn God's favor through what? Through the work of grace. It's given to you freely. But here we see a picture in James where in some ways he's holding into tension God's grace in what? The things that we do. And this comes really strongly in verse 22. In verse 22 of James 1, he says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. But, Chris, if you can get it on the screen. But what else does he say? He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but read that last portion with me out loud. Do what it says. Do what it says. You see, the saving portion 
of what James is talking about. It's this Greek, the, if you take save in the Greek, it's sozo. And what it primarily means is it delivers you, it protects you, it helps you out, it offers healing into your life. So in some ways, what James is saying is that if you live this out, it has the potential to save your circumstance. So while ultimately it's God's grace that saves us for all eternity, it's God's grace that allows us to go from darkness to life, from broken to whole. Ultimately, if we listen to his word, if we apply his word, and we strive to be good moral people, then it not only saves us from eternity, but it saves us in so many circumstances of life. Amen? If you can be not just a listener of God's word, but a doer of God's word, then it has the potential to be able to save your life. The former president of Compassion International had the honor of uh, speaking at my seminary graduation years ago. And I remember one of the things that he said, and it just has always stuck with me, is that being a Christian is like playing soccer downhill. Everything is just set up in your favor because God is with you and for you. But so often we as Christians feel like we're playing soccer uphill, right? Where we think the goal is uphill. You see, church, God gives us the tools to be able to succeed in life. And I'm not just talking about financial success. I'm talking about living whole lives, living the kind of lives where we can feel God's grace, where we can live out God's grace. And through that, we can be the people that God is calling us to be. continues in verse 23 it says anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away immediately forgets what he looks like but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard but doing it they will be blessed in what? In what they do. So God is literally saying that if you keep these things up, if you don't just accept my grace, but allow my grace to penetrate your heart and allow it to be something that is lived out in your life, then it will literally bring blessings in what you do. Here's a formula, church, that if you want to experience blessings for God, there you go. Underline this verse in your Bible and start living this out. You know, years ago I was listening to uh, Francis Chan, if you don't know him, he's a pastor from California, and he gave this funny illustration that stuck with me and 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 you know we as parents sometimes we we tell our kids to do certain things and just by survey here have you ever told your child to clean their room hands are going up but what if that child after 
telling them to clean their room, they came back to you and they said, you know, Dad, I, I thought a lot about what you told me with cleaning my room. And in fact, I did a word study in the Greek about cleaning room. And after that, I've been praying about what it means to clean the room. And I'm thinking about starting a small group as we discuss cleaning our rooms. And then maybe after that, I'm going to write a paper on how to clean a room properly. When what is the father ultimately wanting? He's wanting you to listen to his word and do what it says. Look, I'm not saying any of that's wrong. Every week I, I, I kind of do some of those things, right? I read the Greek or I, we talk about things. But ultimately we need to allow God's word to do what? To penetrate us and to live it out. Church, God wants you to live out his word and what he wants you to do and it's the main idea for today and i think it's really the heart of verses 19 through 25 is he wants you to work hard to rid evil from your life amen this is what i think is the build up in this verse that we as christians need to work hard to rid evil from our life and it starts by not just being listeners of god's word but doers of god's word douglas moo the the a famous theologian and commenter says, shun the kind of behavior associated with the old life and begin living by the standard of the word that had saved them, that had saved you. One of my favorite quotes about sin comes from Susanna Wesley. And if you don't know who Susanna Wesley is, this is John Wesley's mother john wesley and his brother charles were famous hymn writers and revivalists and in uh, one time john wrote his mother susanna asking her how to define sin for him and susanna being the brilliant woman that she was well versed in multiple languages but ultimately someone that was so disciplined and thoughtful wrote this back to john and said this Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things. Whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is a sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. You want to be able to remove evil? Then take a look at this. Sin is ultimately what weighs us down, what gives strength to the flesh over the mind or the will. And now ask yourself, church, what in your life is causing you to sin? Look, I know these things are attached to our hip, right? But is this causing you to sin? Are some of the relationships that you're in causing you to sin? Some of the habits that you form causing you to sin? Some of the music that you listen to? What is causing you to sin? To not be the kind of person that is not just a listener of God's word, but a doer of God's word.
for our reflection time, I think that that is what ultimately God wants for us to, to do, to work hard, to rid evil from our lives. You know, Jesus, in, in some similar ways, shares this lesson through the parable of the seeds. And if you know the parable of the, the seeds and the sower, then you would know that multiple seeds are scattered in different places, right? And the seeds represent what? His word. And out of all those seeds, there was only one that was planted in good soil. We need to plant God's word in good soil. And we need to work hard to till that ground in order for it to grow, sprout up, and produce good fruit in our lives. Amen.